morning, everybody. We're going to talk about water baptism this morning, and uh, some of you are like, water baptism? I, I already did that 30 or 40 years ago, and I, I already understand that, and I see it happen in church every once in a while. We are obviously, the, the week after Easter, you know, we, we were last weekend, we gathered and this celebration of Jesus' resurrection, remembering obviously on Friday that he died and then Sunday that he, he rose to life and understanding the importance of that. And so uh, I think I, I've been thinking about this Sunday, honestly, as much about this Sunday as I was thinking about Easter, knowing that this, this understanding of what it really means to follow Jesus daily isn't built on this huge kind of weekend, which as a pastor, by the way, Pastors always think, and I, I, I don't really necessarily, necessarily ascribe to this idea, but like Easter is the Super Bowl of pastoring and of church. Like, because why? More people come, and it's like, that's wonderful, but the reality of following Jesus is we follow him 365 days a year, not just on Easter. And I want to talk about water baptism. And the reason I'm doing it this, the following Sunday after Easter is because what we'll talk about this morning is that it is a significant understanding of the death and resurrection of Jesus reflected in our lives. In fact, it's an important symbol. And so you might be here this morning, you're thinking, okay, all right, I, I was baptized before, and I understand that, so can we move on to something more meaty and more interesting, and you can engage me this morning? But I want you to understand, if, if that's your mindset, maybe you haven't fully understood the significance of baptism in your life. Maybe you're here and you've never been baptized in water, you've never experienced that, it's something you've thought about. And this morning, obviously, this will be really important for you to understand why it's so important to walk through the concept and the experience of baptism. Uh, in, in the church, it depends what your background is, but if you come from a Catholic background, you hear this terminology more frequently than in a Protestant or even in evangelical churches, which we would fall under. And as you hear the things called sacraments, and sacraments are, are really symbols or signs of what is held to be sacred. And in our church, there's really, if you want to call them, there's two sacraments. There's communion. And there's water baptism. Those are two symbolic things that we do as a church family that remind us of Jesus' death through communion and what his sacrifice meant for us in bringing forgiveness and freedom. And then also water baptism, which is the the holistic picture of dying to the old way of living and then rising to life, which identifies us with Jesus. And those two things are extremely important. And baptism is far more important, I think, than maybe we even understand. And we'll talk a little bit about that this morning because baptism is what, what, a, what a wedding is to marriage, baptism is to following Jesus. So, so think about it in terms of that, in terms of marriage. So, so I've done a lot of weddings, in it, and I haven't done one wedding where it ever unfolded this way, where suddenly two people met each other and, and fell in love, and then five minutes later they said, hey, Pastor John, can you perform a ceremony right now and marry us? I haven't had that scenario unfold yet. What a wedding is, is that, that two people had come together, they've, they've, they've fallen in love with each other, and because of that, well, they want to make a lifelong commitment to each other, and so they plan out this thing called a wedding, not to somehow fall in love, but to demonstrate and make a public declaration of their love that's already present, and so everybody can be a part of that, which is their friends and their family as witnesses to celebrate this new union. Water baptism functions the same way for you and I. I've made this decision in my life to follow Jesus. Now I'm going to take the next step, which is to make, every, make everybody I know aware that I'm choosing to follow Jesus. So I'm going to do this really kind of strange, kind of crazy thing. I'm going to go stand up in front of people and get totally soaked wet. That's it, just for most of, you, most of you go, yeah, that's baptism. Outside the church, that's a little weird. Okay, it just is. It's a little strange that you go up almost in your, you know, pajamas, or excuse me, in your bathing suit, not your pajamas. That would be really, really awkward, wouldn't it? But then you get baptized, and you're standing there totally wet, head to toe. And it gets a little awkward, because you just kind of think through, and you think, why would I do that? Because it's a symbol of what that represents about our life. It's the death of lowering into the water and the life, the resurrection coming out of that. And so this morning, I want to take some time to talk about this. So if you've been baptized before, I want you to listen as intently as if you haven't been. Because I want you to remember the significance and maybe learn the importance of what baptism should mean in all of our lives as we choose to follow Jesus. So what I want to begin to to walk through is actually kind of narrowed it down. As a pastor, I get a lot of questions about a lot of different things. But when it comes to baptism, I get a lot of different questions, and I've narrowed them down to about five that are like the frequently asked questions about baptism that I want to just walk through this morning. Some of you may already know this, but these are sometimes this is confusing for different people. So the, fir- the first question in regard to baptism is, I get asked this quite often, is should I be baptized by sprinkling or immersion? 
In other words, is it okay if someone just sprinkles a little water on me, maybe when I was a baby, or do I have to like go all the way where I have to get into water that's, and I have to be lowered in over my head so that I am soaked from head to toe? Well, the answer from that, for that is, is pretty straightforward in the Bible, that, that baptisms biblically were always done by immersion. There wasn't a sprinkling in terms of baptism that you can find in the scriptures. In fact, the, the work, word baptism in Greek, baptizo, means immersion. It means to be fully immersed in water. And because of that, even, even the biblical example of Jesus who demonstrates what we should do and how we should live, he demonstrates by his own baptism that he was baptized by immersion. It says in Matthew 3, verse 16, it says, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and lighting on him. So this understanding of what was going on is that Jesus was in the water. He didn't walk up to John the Baptist and John the Baptist just said, hey, let me just sprinkle a little water on your forehead. He actually invited Jesus to come into the Jordan River and as a symbol of death and resurrection, he lowered Jesus into the water and then raised him up out. And that's why it says he came up out of the water because he was fully in the water. Second, second thing that people have a tendency to ask about baptism is, can I be baptized more than once? Now, the answer is yes, with some qualifications. So why would we say yes? Does that mean that like every time we offer baptism, which by the way is once a month and comes up on the 26th, the last of this month, and there's a class next Sunday in between services, the 19th, that you can sign up for to be a part of. But does that mean that every time we do baptism in the church, I have to go get baptized all over again? Like I'm I'm somehow insecure that I'm really going to be saved, so I better go do it again just to make sure this time. It's kind of like that altar call every Sunday that you go down, you know, when you were a kid. And it's like, oh, I know if I die, I'm going to go to hell. I better go, you know, rededicate my life for the hundredth time. Anybody relate to that? Baptism isn't meant to be that, but... For many people, and many people that I've had conversations with, they, they, they are raised in a, in, a, in a mainline church or a Catholic church, and so as an infant they were baptized, but that was a decision mom and dad made, and so they come to me and say, is my baptism valid? Do I need to be baptized again? And No, we'll talk about this. You don't have to be baptized to be saved, but baptism should have a significant meaning in your life. That means when you are being baptized, you should understand what you're doing. And that means that, so for, for, for kids who want to be baptized, that's mom and dad's decision. If that child is making the decision based on their understanding, not mom and dad's desire for them to be baptized, but their understanding, then that's something that's significant. But I've had people say, I was like, I was like 10 years old and everybody was doing it. And so my mom and dad wanted me to do it. And I don't even, it didn't even mean anything to me. I've had people who say, you know, I really want to be baptized as an adult. That's Okay. There are people, every, you know, it happens every trip to Israel, people go to the Jordan River, and even though they've been baptized before, what do they do? They want to go get baptized where Jesus was baptized. So they go into the Jordan River, they get baptized. Is that sacrilegious? No. The point is the significance in the meaning in their life, which we'll talk about that in, in just a few moments. But understanding that, that and so to address part of that is that, that infant baptism. I've had people ask that question. If you read through the Bible, you're not going to find any, any moment in time where an infant is baptized on its own because that's what mom and dad decided to do. There are things in Acts where f- households came to Jesus and are baptized, but there's not a specific baptism for infants. Now, does that some of you think, well, I was baptized infant. Do I need to again? Well, let's ask Jesus. Maybe he's calling you to make an adult decision that says, yeah, it's time for me with meaning and significance and understanding to be baptized. So that means if you and I understand that, that means that, that, that the point that baptism brings significance to our lives is where we understand the commitment that we're making when we do it. And if you have never done that in your life, then you need to consider about what it means to really be baptized and take the steps to do that. Third question that people have, uh, this, this comes quite often, and ladies, I'm sorry, this comes more from your side than the guys, but does baptism have to be public? You know, can't we just set up something where we just kind of go with just me and one or two other people and, and just, you know, real quick, you dunk me in the water and, hey, we're all good. Nobody has to really see. And No, because the biblical pattern shows that people were baptized in public places. There, was, there wasn't like, the, you know, in, in, in synagogues and temples, there wasn't a baptismal where you could do it at all. They, they were actually outside in the open, and people were witnessing what was going on, and they were seeing that. And usually, you know, the, the fear is, I don't want to go do that publicly. That's embarrassing. I don't want to get wet in front of everybody. Ladies, I know, I don't want my hair messed up. I don't want my makeup to run, right? All that stuff. And, oh, I'm so concerned. Yes, I know Jesus died and rose again, but I want to look good while I'm doing it, right? Isn't that kind of the, the mindset? Which kind of misses the point, Yeah. But the significance of, of a public demonstration of this commitment 
by being baptized in water, it provides a couple of things that happen in that, in that, that service or that gathering that you can't do when you're doing it just privately. The first one is it's that it makes this, this opportunity of a testimony that you are making to everybody who's present who doesn't know Jesus yet that you belong to Jesus, especially f- uh, friends or family members that maybe don't know Jesus. And you're standing up and saying, listen, I've chosen to identify with Jesus. I'm going to follow him to the point where I'm going to make a public announcement to everyone that I belong to him. And then, the, and then for those of you, the second thing it does is that for those of us who have been baptized or following Jesus, it is a reminder to us of our baptism, of, of this fact that we died and now we're living a new life. And we go back to that moment in time and remember, oh, that's very significant. I need to remember that. Not just, oh, hey, we're doing another baptism this week. That's great. Sing a song and go. It's like, no, remember what happened. Why, why, did, would I, why was I baptized? Why did I go through that? What was the significance in my life? It's extremely important for us to do that. Also, it provides this this moment for this declaration to be made for someone to say, I belong to Jesus. I'm no longer myself. I no longer live for myself. I'm now making a a decision and a commitment before a bunch of people who can hold me accountable that my life is now going to be not perfect, but I'm going to strive to live differently than I did before. And then there's a fourth question, and that is, do I have to be baptized to be a member of the church? The answer is no. Um, there's no membership and ba- church membership and baptism are not synonymous. It's not something that's a requirement. In fact, in our church, if you've been here, you know that we have kind of more of an informal approach to membership, which is membership isn't a document that you sign and that somehow come back, comes back to bite you or to, to haunt you later on. It's, it's the commitment of your life which says, I choose to participate in what God's doing in the church. I choose to give consistently, and I choose, choose to serve in some capacity. If you say yes to all three of those, that's what membership is. If you can say yes to two or two out of three, you probably would say, ah, maybe I'm not a member yet. But none of those include baptism. It's not a part of, you don't have to go through the process and say, okay, well, I want to be a member, so I have to be baptized. No, because the point is, is your desire to be baptized isn't about a commitment to a church. It's about a commitment to Jesus. And if you're committed to Jesus, guess what happens? You'll be committed to his church. That's the way it works. So you don't have to be baptized in order to somehow be a part of or a member of a church. And then the final question that I want to talk about before we move on to the significance of water baptism is, do I have to be baptized to be saved or to be a Christian? Now, for some of you, like, oh, that's no big deal. No, you don't. But this has caused great struggle for many people that I've encountered over the years, that that they, they came from a, a very strict, very legalistic background where the church that they grew up in said this. They said, yes, you have to be baptized to be saved or become a Christian, and You have to be baptized in our church, otherwise you're not saved. I've sat with people in my office who are like, I don't know if I'm really saved, because I I struggle with that, and they want to be baptized, and they said they're the only way, and if that's the only case, then then I guess I'm outside of that, and I don't understand that, And, and I'm like, whoa, 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 time out. Do you really think that God would look down on earth, and of all of the thousands of denominations and millions of churches, he would say, oh yeah, they're my favorite right there. They get the right to say, okay, you baptize, you get saved, but all the other ones I'm just going to throw out. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And, and even the biblical references and the biblical understanding of what salvation is, it's not based on an action or an act. It's based on grace. That's what Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Also, the, the, the other thing that's so evident in Scripture is that if Jesus was saying to you and I, you must be baptized in order to be saved, then he broke his own rule. Because in Luke chapter 23, remember if we were here two weeks ago, we talked about the story where Jesus is on the cross, he's got a thief on either side of him. One doesn't get who he is, the other understands who he is, and then he, he says to Jesus, let me read it, it says, he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, wait a second. If you have to be baptized to be saved, then we should rewrite the story because what should happen is Jesus would say, time out. Let's just hop down off the cross here. Let's go over to the Jordan River. Let me dunk you. Then you get back up on the cross and then you can die and go to be in heaven. That's not part of the record. Why? Because that thief didn't, in order for him to experience salvation, to be with Jesus forever, he didn't have to be baptized because it was, it was in his heart. But does that mean, well, then I don't even really need to worry about baptism? No, no. I don't think any of us hung on a cross lately and in the last moment of our life we're coming to Jesus. That's an extreme situation. 
But it doesn't require, baptism is not a requirement for salvation. Otherwise, it would mean that we have to do some kind of work or action in order for us to access forgiveness and eternity with God. So that's kind of the five main, you may have other questions, I know, but that's kind of, I want to narrow down the five main questions that everybody seems to be confused about water baptism. And now talk about, this is what I really, really want to focus on this morning, is the significance of water baptism. They're like, why is it so important? Why, why, do, why should we do this? Why is this something that we should all participate in and follow in Jesus? The first one is this. It is a commitment of obedience. And I know obedience, and then another word we're going to talk about in a moment, repentance, are like bad words in the church. We don't like to hear about obedience because we think of what? Obligation, have to do something against my own will, something that I don't like. That's our, our definition of obedience. But obedience has to do with an acknowledgement. I'm going to do what Jesus said I'm supposed to do. I'm going to be baptized in water to identify with him. Why? Because he said this is what I'm supposed to do. And it's an acknowledgement that I am no longer in charge of my life. He's in charge of my life. Therefore, when he calls me or commands me to do something, I do it. That's why when we, when we have baptism, you'll hear us make this statement. We'll ask somebody, do you confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, which means, yeah, he saved you from your sin, but he's also your Lord, which means he's your master. It means he's the, the, the one that's in control of your life, the one that is the leader of your life, the one that calls the shots, the one who's in charge. That's huge. And, and baptism is that acknowledgement that I am identifying with Jesus so much so that I'm being obedient to do something that outside the church looks really bizarre, getting wet in front of a bunch of people, but that's what Jesus called me to do. That's what Jesus commanded in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. We call it the Great Commission. He says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. It's that step of obedience that says, I am submitting myself to Jesus being the one who's in charge of my life. And he's called me to do this. It is that sign that says, I am now a part of what he is doing. I am now chosen to be obedient to that. And, and, and you and I should be very grateful that we don't live in Old Testament times because in the Old Testament, there was another sign that was given to the Jews that, to say, hey, this, these are my special people. And it wasn't water baptism. Anybody recall what it was? Circumcision. I choose water baptism. Thank you very much. But that was the sign that God gave to Israel to say, I'm going to set you apart from all other nations. That was a physical sign that he gave to, to Israel to say, you will be different than everybody else. And then in the New Testament, the sign is water baptism. I have been baptized into his family. Now I belong to him. And there's something that happens that I think you and I, unless you and I have experienced baptism, unless we have said, I'm all in to follow Jesus and been a part of that, is that there's this, this connection and this bond that occurs that we finally realize it's not only are we following Jesus, but now we are part of this family, this body of Christ, that all these other people that I'm getting to know, they've become a part of this body too through this thing, for lack of a better term, almost this initiation called water baptism. They're now, they came in the front door. Now we're all, we're all a part of this family. Why? Because we've all walked through the same process to get here. We're all bound together because we've become baptized and we belong to Jesus now. And everybody knows that. There's something that, that can't happen in any of us if all that we do is say, okay, listen, I'm going to define my Christianity by the way I want it to be, which means I'm going to attend church when it works well for my schedule. When I feel guilty enough, I'll give a little bit of money. And sometimes I might serve, but I'm not really going to do that. And this thing called mission, that's for the gifted people. And so I'll just kind of show up and kind of do my thing and, and never really understand that following Jesus means that I do what he wants me to do. I obey what he wants me to obey in, in life. It's not, and it, it has to be something that you and I are in together, that there's this group of people that are, we're bound together by this thing called baptism. We've been baptized. We now belong to him. And, and I, I know it happens in different, I've never been in the military, but I know it's almost like if you've gone through basic training, that's almost like the, the rite of passage to be in the military. And so you go through that and you are what? You feel this connection with the people that you went through. Why? Because this, this, this bond that happens, we've all gone through this together. I've experienced that in sports where you, you, you come together with a team and, and you start to mesh and you start to walk through sometimes difficult things together. And I know in high school when I started playing basketball, we, I went to a school that did not have a lot of talent. And so we were committed to outwork and outlast any other team that we played. So our biggest thing was we had to be in the best condition of our life. 
So we'd get to the fourth quarter when other more talented teams would run out of gas. We would keep going, and that's how we would beat teams. But that didn't start when basketball season started. That started way before basketball ever even started. Before we even touched a basketball, our coach said, listen, this is, I, I'm going to say this is a requirement, but he can't like drive to our house and force us to do this. But he said every preseason before we get there, we have what they call morning runs, which is you get to school way before anybody else is, way before the sun ever comes up, and then we work out together in conditioning so that by the time you touch a basketball, you're in the best shape of your life. And the first year when he approached, we, I got on the team, he said, this is something you're mandated to do. I lived a, a good distance from my school, and my parents couldn't provide transportation, so I'm like, uh, I can do it on my own. And I tried and failed miserably. I lasted one week of my own, running out and doing sprints and stuff, and it just didn't work. So the second year, I was able to get there, and I realized the significance of what this conditioning was about. It wasn't only about being in good shape. It was a bonding time that had, was created for the team to come together and go through something together that was almost like an initiation to really be a part of the team. And the reason that happened is because the, the conditioning that they had designed our coaches, I'm just think, I, and I'm convinced that it was just kind of a smokescreen for torture. That's what it was. How can we run these guys in the ground? In fact, every single year they did the same thing. They would warn all of us. They'd say, listen, pack your breakfast and eat it after we do conditioning because you don't want to eat beforehand. And every year, guys would go, ah, I can handle this. It's not going to be a big deal. And I think that first conditioning session was the coach's goal was see how many guys we can get to throw up. That was like their goal. And sure enough, every time, three, four, five guys, after we get towards the end of conditioning, they're over on the side of the track just losing everything. And, and, and because of that, you all go through this. You're all struggling. You're all going through this pain. It's difficult. You walk through. But by the time you get to the season, there's this bond that happens. You look at the guy on your right and your left, you're like, yeah, you know, we were on that track. You were puking right next to me. I feel your pain, man. There was this bond that happened when we got onto the court. Now, if I would have just skipped all that and I did the first year, there was a difference between me and every other player. I felt like I didn't belong until finally I was part of the whole process. Now, aren't you glad that baptism is a one-time event that you don't have to go out and condition every single morning and you have to throw up? That's not baptism. But it's the same result. Some of us don't feel like we belong because we haven't walked through the door of what it really means to follow Jesus yet. We haven't taken the first step of obedience in following him. Therefore, when we walk into a church on Sunday morning, we still feel like a stranger. And it's not because people won't talk to us. It's because we just feel like outsiders. Why? Because we haven't stepped in yet. We, we're not, we haven't said, I'm all in yet, and stepped into the waters of baptism. And then the second, second point of significance of water baptism in our life is that it is a sign of, here's the other bad word, Repentance. Repentance. Repentance means to change direction, which means I am going one way, I stop, and I turn around, and I go the opposite direction of where I was going. It's a very biblical term. It's laced throughout Scripture. And baptism is that intersection that God creates in our life in following Him that gives you and I the opportunity to make a U-turn, to turn around from where we've been going and then walk back the journey to following Jesus. And that's important because for some of us, we're wanting to follow Jesus, but we're not wanting to turn. We're wanting to him to somehow follow us into what we're doing as opposed to us following him. And that's kind of the challenge sometimes is that we want him to follow us instead of us following him. But baptism is that, that moment, that marker where we say, you know what, I'm making a U-turn now. I'm not, doesn't mean that my life's going to be perfect, but I'm no longer going to choose to live my life that way. I'm going to choose to let go of that, let that die so that I can be alive to what God wants to do in my life. It's the very thing that Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. He says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and be baptized. So turn, and that's what baptism demonstrates. I am turning around. I am not going the way that I want to. And what's beautiful about baptism is that when you and I make that turn, it becomes, and we'll talk about this in a moment, a marker that reminds us not to go back. I'm not going back in my life to the other side of baptism and reliving the failures that I had. I'm not living that life anymore. I am moving forward. I can only move forward, and I'm not moving backward. We, you know, we sing this song, you know, talk about following Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. That's, that's what it's talking about. I'm not turning back to the way I used to live. My, my sister, what her, one of her first cars was a 1971 Dodge Dart. And uh, some of you know what a Dodge Dart is because for some reason, Dodge thought it would be a good idea to remake it. Now it's coming out again. I don't know why. But, but the new Dodge Dart and the old Dodge Dart are not even the same car and don't even resemble it except for the name. And her, she had, her 71 Dodge Dart was this green machine, and it was, it was kind of 
on the last end of its life when she got it. But it, it was a pretty good car for her. In fact, so much so, she had it when, um, when she got married to her husband. And, and, uh, and so when they got married, you know, like, like has, maybe you've experienced this progression, guys. You know, when, when you're married, the wife always gets the nicer car. How many know that's true? You guys should be raising your hand because if that's not the case right now, you need to switch cars right now. Okay, that's the way it works. Your wife gets the nicer car. The husband gets the beater. If she's driving the beater, guys, we need to have a conversation, okay? So the Dodge Dart was the beater car. So my, my, my uh, brother-in-law, he gets that car. And so he's driving it. And about a year before they got rid of it, I'm not kidding, about a year, reverse went out. Reverse didn't work anymore. So, and they were like, okay, do we get a new car right now? We can't afford it. Do we go get the transmission replaced? That's a lot of money. So they basically said, he goes, I'm just going to drive it until we can get the money to buy it. So just think about this for a moment. What would it be like to get in your car every day and realize, I can't go in reverse? Even if you tried, you, it will not go in reverse. You can't park in your garage anymore because you've got to keep moving forward. And so he would tell me things. He's so funny. We were talking about, he goes, yeah, he goes, I went to work today. And he goes, I drove around for like 20 minutes. I was just driving around blocks looking for that one spot that you pull up and it's like the fire hydrant's in front of you or a driveway and so you can keep pulling forward. Because he knew if he got in there and someone pulled in front of him, I'm like stuck. I can't go backwards. I can only go forward. For like a year he did that. I was like, dude, get a new car or something or walk to work. You know, it's got to be easier than that. But I want you just to think about what would our lives look like if we didn't have the capacity to put our lives in reverse? Just think about that for a moment. Just think about every decision that you and I make about moving forward, about following Jesus. We are always tempted to shift into reverse, to go backwards to where we came from. Why? Because it's familiar or comfortable or it's luring us in or it's tempting us. What if we have a marker in time called baptism that once we look in our rearview mirror, there's baptism saying, no, you died already. You're not supposed to live that way. You only can move forward. You, you can't go back anymore. Sometimes, I don't know if you're like me, I wish that God could do that. He could just disable my reverse. It would be wonderful if he could disable the sin mechanism. Anybody up for that one? All right, get baptized in water, commit my life to Jesus, and man, I don't have to sin anymore. That'll happen, but not in this life. That'll happen in the next one. But that, that's what baptism provides for you. It's that moment of I'm turning and now I'm following Jesus, and I don't, I don't have to put it in reverse tomorrow. I don't want to go back. I keep moving forward. The third thing that's very significant about water baptism is that it becomes a spiritual marker in our lives. See, because you and I are human, we all fall under the same curse, and it's called spiritual amnesia, which means you and I forget what God does in our life all the time. There may be really high, significant moments of God doing profound things in our life, and in that moment, you're like, wow, God is amazing. I'll, I'll never turn from Him. I'll always be faithful. Things will always be wonderful until the next day, right? And then you're like, you forgot what happened yesterday. That's why when we talk about the sacraments, we talk about communion and we talk about water baptism. Remember the first communion? You remember what Jesus said to his disciples? He said, do this to what? Remember me. Why would he say that? Because he knew his disciples then and his disciples now would forget. We would forget what Jesus did and the significance on the cross. So he said, you need to take these elements, these symbols that remind you that my death purchases your life. My death forgives you of sin. My death sets you free because we will forget about those things. And that's what water baptism does for you and I. It gives us that marker in our lives, a marker in time, a time and date that says, you know what? I was making a public declaration of what was already true inside of me, which is I already know that I was following Jesus, but I made a public declaration that now I have a spot in time that says, there's my spiritual marker. It reminds me that I've chosen to follow Jesus. That's something that's extremely biblical because there's a turning point in our lives. There's a marker. If you look through the New Testament, you see that Jesus, who was the greatest example for us, when he's baptized in Matthew chapter 3, which we read just a little bit earlier, you get to the next portions of Scripture, and what happens is that Jesus goes into the season of temptation. He goes out and fasts and prays and seeks God, and then he goes into a season of temptation, and then after that, he goes into ministry. Everything changed after Jesus' baptism. You remember what happened at his baptism? Not only was he baptized in water, but then it says what? That the, that the Holy Spirit came on and descended on him. And the same spirit that lives in you and I is the same spirit that Jesus had. Everything changed for him. 
Paul's the same thing. You read in, in Acts chapter 9, verse 18, Paul is baptized, and that's a marker for Paul that everything changed for him. Because before that moment, before that time, what was Paul doing? Paul had come to a place in his life where he had reached the pinnacle of what it was to be successful in his profession, which was a Pharisee. He had become the one that people looked to, the one that had the answers, the most intelligent, the most strict by the law. He had all of that. But then in this moment, he dies to himself, and then he rises to follow Jesus. And what happens to Paul after that? Paul begins to live a life that's crazy incredible. I mean, he, he is doing stuff that you and I can't even imagine. People are being healed through his prayers. He is preaching to people, and people are coming to Jesus. He's literally facing death almost every day of his life. And he's doing this. Why? Because he died to himself. He's raised to life. Why? Because he was baptized. He remembers, I'm no longer a Pharisee. I belong to Jesus. And now my life is different. See, some of us need that. Some of us need that marker. That's, it's very biblical. If you read through the Old Testament, it's like you can't read more than a couple pages before somebody's building an altar that God told them to build to remember. Somebody's piling up a heap of rocks. Why? Because you're going to forget. And Israel's journey is always funny. They're walking along and, oh yeah, there's a well and there's a pile of rocks. And remember this? And how many times do you go through in Israel's history and their leaders? And even if you read through the book of Acts, Israel always has to rehearse their history. Why? Because they forget. They go back and say, let's start back, remember in Egypt, and then all the history unfolds. Can you th- imagine people, oh, I've heard this story before a million times, but you need to hear it again. Why? Because you forgot. That's what water baptism does for you and I. It reminds us that we have died to ourselves and we are now following Jesus. You and I need markers. Markers point to significance in our life. Markers cause us to remember what's happened so we live in light of that today. A couple of years ago, a number of years ago, we went to Washington, D.C. with the kids, and we got to go on the tours and all kind of fun stuff and crazy stuff. In fact, one side note is one of the things that I remember the most uh, is that we went inside the White House and got a tour, which was amazing. And then we were walking out the, the fountain side of, of the White House, and we're headed out to the gates, and Jordan was holding his little, like, flyer or, or program or what it was, and it slipped out of his hand, and the wind blew it over the chains off of the, the, the cement walkway onto the grass. Now, this is the White House. This is, you know, where the fountain's beautiful. Everything's immaculate. The grass is, like, perfectly trimmed and everything. And then there's this program, like, eight feet out on the grass. I'm like, oh, I gotta get that. So I step off over the little chains onto the grass, and I'm not kidding, two steps onto the grass. I had three secret service right around me. They're like, sir, don't step on the grass. I'm like, I just have to get this. They're like, sir, don't move. I'm like, okay, maybe I shouldn't, especially when one of them has their hand on their gun. Probably should listen to him. And so finally, I actually took one extra step and I grabbed it because it was just really bothering me. And so I got back on the other, the other side. Anyway, that has nothing to do with why I'm telling you this story, but I just thought it was interesting, right? The highlight of going to D.C. Almost got shot by Secret Service. That was the highlight for me. No, but actually, one of the coolest things was when we went to the Lincoln Memorial and we got to step, stand up on the steps. And there's, if you've been there, there's a marker that's at the top of those steps. In fact, look, take a look at the marker. The marker looks like this. It is a marker that was put there because Martin Luther King Jr. made his amazing, famous speech, I Have a Dream speech, on those steps, on that place that was key and pivotal for our nation in understanding what it meant in civil rights and freedom for all people. That's a significant moment. I remember standing there, and you see this view of what it, would have, what it must have been like with, you know, like a million people on the mall there, just all gathered around what's happening there. That's a significant moment. It's pretty cool just to stand there. Someone reminded me in between services, not only did, did uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. stand there, but Forrest Gump stood there too, which is pretty cool. So, you know, one of the, Forrest Gump, Martin Luther King, I don't know, it's a toss-up, right? But there's significance in markers. You stand there and you can't help but remember and think about what that meant for our nation, what that meant for people, millions of people who were impacted by this one moment in time that changed so much for so many people. See, you and I need that, and that's what modern baptism provides for, for you and I. And then there's a couple more. The other thing that's true about baptism and it's significant in our lives is that it affirms the opportunity for new life. So in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, which means they belong to him, they follow him, they rely on him, they are a new creation, the old is gone, and the new has come. Water baptism provides this, this amazing opportunity to be new. Not, not physically new, like somehow we'd, we'd all love that. You know, every ache and pain, I'll go into the waters of baptism and come out and I'll be brand new hum- in, in my physical body. That will happen someday in the resurrection. 
But to truly be new, be made new, be washed clean, to be made right, is the process of baptism. And, and to think about what is it like in our lives, and this is what's hard sometimes, what is it like to feel right? To feel new? To feel clean? See, most of us, we know what it's like to feel guilty, shameful, condemned. That's, that's, that's the emotions and that's the thoughts that we live in. But what water baptism does is in that moment, as you are surrendering yourself physically, you're surrendering yourself spiritually, realizing I am dying to my sin. I'm dying to my old way of living. And because of that, I'm experiencing forgiveness. And from forgiveness comes this thing called freedom. Does it mean that you're perfect and you never sin again? No, but in that moment, you will experience what God's purpose for each person. That is, you're set free. You're right before God. You're clean, and now you are made brand new. Your thinking starts to change. You start looking at your life differently. Why? If that was truly a significant moment of meaning for you, that has that mark of, I'm new, and it's a reminder when you feel old, you go back and say, no, no, I'm new. I'm new because I made that declaration. I, knew, I, I know I'm new because of what Jesus did in my heart and because of that I choose to live as a new person, not with the old mindset that I used to. It's, it's that, that, that understanding that death brings life. And sometimes you and I need to understand that transition, which we'll talk about in a moment. But, but what it is, when water has this amazing property to it that when it is, it is poured on something or sprinkled on something or something gets immersed by it, it brings life. Now, we, of all people who live in Southern California, should know the power of water or the lack thereof, right, currently. When we get rain once every five years, obviously, no, like real rain, not like last week's rain, which was, you know, all the meteorologists going, it's going to rain, and we're all waiting, and one drop falls, and everybody goes, wow, did you see that? Wow, that almost registered. Wow, we almost had rain. No, like real rain, like about a month or two ago, we actually had real rain, like measurable rain. I don't know if you recall, you know, the morning after you, you, you hear the rain all night and you go out and you start driving, there's this amazing thing happens. The hills turn green. We don't even know what green is, do we? Now, if, in Oregon, they have like 5,000 different shades of kinds of green. But here we have brown and an occasional green, but mostly brown, right? But after it rains, what happens is that there's this beauty that comes. Why? Because what we thought was dead is actually alive. In fact, we, Kim and I, we were driving, I think it was that the curve, you know, coming off 118 and turning into the 23, going up into Thousand Oaks through Moore Park. And you just you turn the corner, I'm like, I think we're in Ireland. I don't think we're in California anymore. Everything's green. It's beautiful. In fact, Kim took a picture of that area and she sent it to some of our friends in Oregon because they always bag on us about, you guys don't know what green is. You don't know what rain is. And we're like, look, look, this is actually California. You won't believe this. It's actually green for a day, right? Until it turns brown tomorrow. But what is it like to realize that, that when you and I have this mark called baptism, when we've made the commitment to follow Jesus and then we make that public declara- declaration, there is life that is breathed into us. What was dead becomes alive and becomes made brand new. See, that's what baptism is for. And then there's the final thing, and this is where I want to conclude, but I want to hang out for a little bit because this is the most significant thing about water baptism that I think many times, whether you've been baptized or you haven't, that we miss. And that is that baptism is a symbol of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now you think, ah, I know that. Die in the water, raise to life. I understand that. No, I don't think we do. See, because if you and I understand that, that the ultimate symbol of what it means to identify with Jesus is found in both his death and his resurrection, not just his resurrection, then sometimes I think we miss part of the equation. In other words, Jesus reversed things when he died and rose from the dead. See, you and I have this mindset, life comes first, then death. Not true. Death comes first, then life. But we struggle with that because we want life to be added to life. We don't want life that comes after death because we don't want to die. We don't want to die to ourselves. But you and I, in order to truly live, have to die. Baptism is as much about death as it is about life. And we always hang out on the life side. That's why, why is Easter so much bigger than Good Friday? Because it's about life. No one wants to hang out in death. But you can't get to Easter unless you hang out on Friday first. That's why, that's why the resurrection for us is significant, but the resurrection, I think, was even more powerful for Jesus' disciples who watched him die. And then they saw him come to life. 
But you and I have to understand that's the picture of baptism. And, and why baptism is so significant is I think I'm convinced that some of us are trying to follow Jesus and we still haven't died to ourselves yet. We're just asking Jesus to add on the life part to our life. Just make my life better. Just, just improve my life. I don't want to die. Just make what I have better. You and I can't truly live until we truly die. That's why Paul wrote this in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. He says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the, through the glory of the Father, we too may be raised or may live a new life. What is Paul saying? We're all baptized, what, into his death. That means when Jesus died on the cross and he took our sin and nailed it to the cross, that, that means that we died too. Our old way of living, our old mindset, our sin, all that, that dies. But if you and I are never willing to come to a place where we really are willing to die to ourselves, and this, to me, this is the issue for our church. This is the issue for the church. This is the issue of my life. Is that the struggles I have in my faith and following Jesus have nothing to do with God's ability to do what he wants to do in my life. It has to do with my inability to truly die to myself. This is the biggest issue every day of our life. We struggle with dying to ourselves, And then we wonder why life doesn't work and why we get mad at God and why we feel like God hasn't done what he's supposed to do. Why? Because we never died. So we're not really alive. What does dying to ourselves really look like? It means that God gives you and I the capacity to actually think about somebody else other than ourselves. To actually wake up in the morning and realize the reason I'm alive is not for me. It's for what God wants to do through me and for his glory. And that's the only reason I have breath today. It's not to go to work. It's not to eat my favorite lunch. It's not to do anything that I want. It's because God has decided I'm to be alive today, not for myself, but for what he wants to accomplish through me. That's life. But if you and I just think about that, what is that like? I know what it is for me. The, uh, let me give you just one little note of, of marital advice, okay, that I've learned. Kim and I have learned, and, and I'm slower. Kim learned it sooner than I did. But you, people come, oh, man, our marriage is struggling. I don't know. I mean, she does this. He does that. Da, 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 da. Here, here, you want to want, want know something that will help in all areas of your marriage? Die to yourself. No, 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 no. You don't know. My, my husband, my wife, I can't, I can't trust them. Not getting, no, die to yourself. Which means you think through your day and think, how can I live? Obviously, for Jesus is the primary, but how do I live for my spouse? How do I help them? How do I give up what I think I need so that they can have what they need? I have realized in the cycle of marriage, marriage is not good when I think it's about me. It's very disappointing. It is. And it's not because Kim's not a good wife. She's an amazing wife. But it's because it's all about me. It's about my needs and what I want. It's like, and by the way, marriage is not 50-50. If anyone ever told you that, they're lying to you. 50 is 100%, 100%. You're all in. And that's why this, the, the picture of marriage is the picture that God gives us of our relationship to him. What if you woke up in the morning and say, how do I serve my spouse today? How do I care for them? Even though they're not perfect and even maybe they've hurt me, maybe they've done something wrong and I have a, how do I serve them today? How do I think through? Not, well, not do I wait till they ask me to do something. How do I think through well, how can I best help them today? I know when I do that, man, marriage is awesome. Life is great. I'm happy, Kim's happy, and she does the same for me. But if you and I get up in the morning and say, you know, what am I gonna get out of this marriage? What am I gonna do that's best for me? How is he or she going to meet my needs? Wrong question. The same thing applies to Jesus. We are so disappointed with our following Jesus. We are so disappointed or disillusioned with Christianity. Why? Because we still think it's all about us. And it's not. It's not. And the sooner we realize that, the happier we're going to be. When I stood back in worship this morning and I'm watching, and, and Christy was right, you guys were a little bit more pepped up than first service, but first service, man, we needed like mainline caffeine or something because people were like, come on. And it's not about just, you know, kind of working up emotion in the room. If Jesus really died and rose from the dead and I died to myself and I'm living to new life, then doggone it, we should be a little excited, right? Sorry, that was like a Christian cuss word I just did, okay? We'll bleep it out. But I'm serious. We should walk in here and say, well, I get to worship Jesus. I get to be in fellowship with other people. I should be excited, not like, okay, you make me brave. <laughs> Woo. Now hear me, I, I, I'm not pointing at any one individual, okay, please, I wasn't. But I'm thinking, really? If this is true, 
And I've died to myself, and I'm alive to Jesus, and if I do die physically, it's only gain. That's what Paul said. If I die, I gain. If I live, it's Christ, so you can't really kill me. That's what he was saying. If that's true, oh man, it'll change every moment of every, every point of my life, because I've already died to myself, and now I get to live for him. That's why Jesus said some really important words in Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. You've probably heard this passage before. It says, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their, daily, uh, their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Jesus knew what he was talking about. He's saying if you want to really be alive, you have to die first. And that's why he also said you have to daily pick up your cross. And what was he saying to his disciples? See what he was saying is like for you and I, daily pick up your electric chair. Daily pick up your lethal injection. Daily pick up your gas chamber. That's what he was saying, because the instrument of execution was the cross. And he's saying, daily, you have to die to yourself. Not only being willing to die for me, but you have to die to what you think you need and be alive to what you really do need, and that is a life fulfilled in me. But I'm convinced that we struggle with this, and this is a key to our future, that if we are really going to be a church that is about God's mission and God's purpose and really making a difference in our city, in our world, we all have to come and die. We have to die to our agenda for church. We have to die for our agenda for our life. We have to die to all the things that we think we're supposed to have or that God owes us so that we can be raised to life. Let me close with this. There's a a church in Denver, and I won't get into the lengthy story about it, but I'll give you some highlights that really seems to communicate something I think is is very powerful. the name is kind of interesting. The name is Adullam, which is in reference to da- the cave that David went into with his men. I don't want to explain the whole thing. It's kind of strange. It gets people's attention for sure. But the, the concept of this church is really interesting. It was a church that was never supposed to be a church. It was started by a couple that were pastoring in Portland, and he got fried on the whole church thing. He was tired of trying to keep the machine going. Every week he felt like I had to perform for people. I had to have a better message in the week before. He tells stories, and there's a, there's a mall called the Lloyd Center, and he said every time on the way to the church on Sunday morning, he goes, I pull over in the Lloyd Center parking lot, and I would throw up. He goes, then I finally could get enough guts to go and preach and think I would do well enough. He said, I got to t- so tired of, honestly, he said, maintaining Christians and, and all the issues. They just wouldn't follow Jesus. He said, finally, he and his wife, they quit. And they walked away from the church. They didn't walk away from Jesus. They just said, we can't do this church thing. So they moved to Denver. They both got secular jobs. And they started building relationship with people who had no idea about Jesus and definitely never wanted to go to church. But they weren't there to plant a church. They were just there to talk to people and live with people and talk and focus on Jesus. That's all they were there to do. So they ended up with about 25 people in their living room on a weekly basis. And they weren't trying to start church. And these were all non-believers. And one day, one of the non-believers looks around the room and says, aren't we a church? And he's like, no, please don't say that word. (laughs) And then he said, you want to know what it means to be a church? And they started talking about what that looks like. And this church gets started. There's a lot of unique things about Adullam, and one of the things that's very unique about their process is that they've made a commitment, and they've held to it for years. They have capped their church at 300 people. They won't let it get any more numerically higher than 300. And you think, well, that's kind of strange. Why would you do that? You want hundreds, if not thousands, right? No, there's a reason. There's a reason. They've made a commitment that every time they reach 300 and they start to creep above 300, you know what they do? They do a crazy thing. They go and plant another church. They don't go plant another campus with a satellite feed of the pastor up on the screen. Sorry, no offense to other churches that do that. But they go plant a legitimate church that is independent, that has its own leadership, has its own structure. But one of the ways that they keep their church at 300 is Hugh Halter's the pastor, and he tells the story. They have a process that the people walk through to be a part of a dolem. And in their process, they have a second stage, and second stage, they give, they give it in a name, and it's called the death talk. And this is what he does. When people have come, and by the way, he shares stories when, when Looky Lou Christians show up on a Sunday morning, he chases them out of the church as fast as he can. Because he goes, you don't want to be a part of us. You don't even want to go here because it's way too costly for you. But if they do stick around, they get to stage two. He says, come over to my house for dinner. And so they come over there, and he goes, now we're going to have the death talk. They're like, wow. And so he begins to lay out, this is what it means to follow Jesus. You have to die to yourself. If you want to truly live, you have to die to your agenda for life. You have to die to your convenience. You have to die to your, 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 
what you think your career is supposed to be. You have to die to everything in your life. And if you're going to be someone who impacts our city through Adullam, you have to be willing to die so that what we do as a church, you follow through. And this is a part of the rhythm of life, that you are doing this with us together. You're all in. And if you can't do that, that's okay. He goes, I'll give you a list of 20 other churches in our city that you can go and you don't have to do this. But if you want to come to be a part of what God's doing here, you have to come and die first. And then he says, are you in? That keeps your church capped at about 300 pretty well. <laughs> because anyone who's not serious about following Jesus with their life, that, that Jesus is not an additional thing that you just, oh, add on, so we'll be happy and I'll get my internal life. No, he is the center, he's the core, he's everything. They're all in. By the way, I'm not creating the death talk and we're not going to cap at 300, okay? Some of you are already concerned. You're starting to do the numbers. We're already over 300, so we're already out of the ballpark, okay? But I want you to understand that because... That conversation isn't a conversation that Adullam should be having in Denver. That conversation is a conversation that every person who chooses to follow Jesus has to have. And it's the conversation that Jesus will have with you. That's what he said in Luke. He's saying to his disciples, if you want to live, you have to die. Now, how does that fit into baptism? Baptism is the outward sign of your death. It's crazy. Your day of death and your day of resurrection is the same thing when you're baptized. It's in that same moment, and you can't separate the two. Death comes, then life. That's why I thought about baptism, and I've wanted to talk about it for a while because I feel like we don't get baptism, and then we're coming in after Easter. The perfect illustration of what Easter looks like at a very personal level is water baptism. I die to myself. I'm raised to follow Jesus. Now, I'm going to close in prayer in a moment, but, but I want you to know we will have baptism in two weeks. We haven't had a baptism in probably like six months right now. And we put it out there every month, waiting to see if someone wants to be baptized. It's always offered. There's a class next week, and you need to sign up for it if you'd like to be a part of it. You need to write on your Connect card, baptism, or check the box. Yeah, I am promoting baptism. I am, because this is the opportunity to say, okay, you know what? I'm in on this. I'm, I'm going to do this, because I've chosen to follow Jesus, but I need to make the public declaration. Or I've been following Jesus for many years, but I was baptized as an infant, and it didn't mean anything to me, so I want to step into the waters of baptism. That you think through, okay, I want this to be something that is a marker in my life, that I am now dying to myself permanently and being raised to to new life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for your demonstration, your example of water baptism that points to your death and your resurrection. And I know, Lord, that we can look at things like, even like communion and water baptism, these things that we would say are the, the, the sacred things that, that, that we need to participate in, the symbols, Lord, the sacraments. And we can do those, Lord, but we can do those without even really knowing why we're doing them. But Lord, you place those for us, the church, in the rhythm of our life so that we would, be, we would remember the significance of what they mean. That, Lord, that through your cross we are forgiven, we are free. And through baptism, you demonstrate that we identify with you. We die to ourselves, and we rise to a new way of living. So I pray, Lord, that as a church, not only in the moment of baptism, but in the practice of baptism throughout our life, that, Lord, if we have been baptized, that once again, we would live as though we are alive, but we would live knowing that we've already died. That we would truly live dead to ourselves and alive to you in every aspect of our lives. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.